All right, well, let's move along now to our teaching for this morning. So today we are going to be in Psalm 32. We're continuing in our series on fearless prayer. We called it learning about prayer and learning how to grow in our prayer life. We're continuing our series today, and we're going to be learning from Psalm 32 this morning. So if you want to turn to Psalm 32, I'll give you just a minute. If you don't have your Bible with you, then we'll have the words on the screens next to me so that you can follow along there. Then once again, we'll be in Psalm chapter 32 this morning. I'm going to read that, and then we'll look at what we have to learn from it. Psalm 32 is where we'll be. I'm going to read the whole psalm. It's not a long one. And then we'll get started. All right. In Psalm 32, in verse 1, it says, How joyful is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How joyful is a person whom the Lord does not charge with iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones became brittle, and my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was drained as in the summer's heat. Then I acknowledged my sin to you, and did not conceal my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Immediately, when great flood waters came, they will not uh, come, they will not reach him. You are my hiding place, and you protect me from trouble. You surround me with joyful shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and show you the way to go with my eye on you. I will give counsel. Do not be like a horse or mule without understanding that must be controlled with bit and brittle, or else it will not come near you. Many pains come to the wicked, but the one who trusts in the Lord will have faithful love surrounding him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones. Shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Many of us find that our prayer life and our daily time in prayer, where we go before the Lord, is, uh, many of us find it difficult. We find it maybe uninteresting. Maybe even we find it draining. Sometimes we find that our prayer lives are weak and lacking of any power, of any true encounter with God. It's okay for us to admit this because prayer is difficult for many of us, and, um, and it doesn't necessarily mean that you're a bad Christian. It just means it's something that we need to grow in, that we need to take to the Lord and learn and, uh, and grow in the discipline of. It's crucial for us to move beyond weak prayers, to move beyond a prayer life where that lacks any power, that is draining rather than life-giving, because if we are to know God truly, we must know him with more than just our minds. We need, in other words, we need to know more than just propositions about God, but we need to know God experientially. It's similar to, you know, any of your closest friends or a spouse uh, or, or, or someone else in your life that you consider to be extraordinarily close to you. You know, you don't just know facts about them, but you know them through the experience of a relationship with them. And we desire to have the true thing be said about our relationship with God. You know, if you, if you just read systematic theologies, 
If you just read books, if you just hear sermons, and none of the truths that you take in, not that I'm against any of those things. If you, you guys who know me know that I'm not. But if you just hear those truths and never then bring them into in a relationship with God where those truths are experienced and lived out in that relationship with him, then it's just knowing facts about God that don't actually impact your heart. Prayer is where we seek to, uh, it, it, prayer and worship are the primary places where we seek to take the truths that we learn about God, right, through theology, through biblical sermons, through our Bible reading and study, where we take those truths of God into our mind and then receive in our heart and, and live out and experience them in relationship with him. Yet we still find it difficult often. And any true believer, one who loves God and is not satisfied with where they are now, but always wants more of God, any true believer is not going to be content with a weak prayer life, with a prayer life that is draining, with a prayer life that, uh, that has no daily encounter with God. Any true believer is going to desire instead to experience life in prayer. For it to be something that's not draining, but that fills us with life. For it to be something that's not weak, but that strengthens us. For it to not be something that is dull, but that, like I said before, we know is going before the throne of God and experiencing him in our relationship based upon what we've experienced in Christ. And whenever I think about this, I think about Psalm 32. Because Psalm 32 is a psalm, like many others, that is just filled with life. Psalm 32 is filled with joy. It is one of the happiest psalms that you can read truly out of any in the Psalter. Right? David writes over and over again of joy and of shouting with joy and rejoicing and happiness. You know, in verse 1 he says, how joyful is the one. Another translation we can say is how blessed uh, but another way that we can translate that word is how happy is the one. And what he says and what he writes about in this joyfulness and this happiness and this blessedness, if we understand the source of it and how he gets it in this psalm, and in, his, in, in this joy that he's getting out of his relationship with God, well, then that's something that it can infuse our prayer life. And in fact... The key to moving from weakness to strength and draining to life-giving and dull prayers to ones that are experiencing God, we can learn how to move from the former uh, to the latter in this psalm right here, Psalm 32. What David says here applies to our joyfulness in prayer as well. And so we're going to look at a couple of things. First, we're going to look at what is the obstacle to joyfulness in prayer we learn here in this psalm. The about the way to joyfulness, how we get past the obstacle, what removes it, the way to joyfulness, and then finally, we're going to see what happens whenever we experience it, which is the growth of joyfulness. So let's start with the obstacle to joyfulness. What do you think would be if we were to take a survey of our culture? Not necessarily, I'm not talking about like yeah, maybe that wasn't a good way to put it. I'm not talking about like a survey of like the population of our culture. Let's say we, just, we took a survey of, um, of the culture makers and asked for them to fill in the blank. How happy is the one who blank? What do you think would be the answer of our culture? And like I said, especially our culture makers, you know, the influencers and celebrities, the talk show hosts the radio host, the uh, politicians, the leaders, and so on. 
our media that we take in? What would be our culture today? What would be our culture's answer to how happy is the one who blank? joyful differently, and based upon what version you read, you'll see, usually it's going to be translated either blessed, happy, or joyful. And so, now what would be our culture's answer to that question? How happy is the one who blank? What do you think our culture would say? Maybe they'll say, how happy who has a lot of things, who has uh, a lot of money in the bank. They got a lot of money saved up, and they've got the, the best new vehicles and the biggest houses and, uh, and the nicest clothing and so on. Maybe that will be one of the answers of our culture. Maybe one of the answers of our culture would be, how happy is the one who has the finest experiences? Maybe that is the most luxurious of food and drink or the, the finest of, of uh, vacations and most adventurous of trips to go on. Maybe our culture would say, you know, how most greatly express themselves. And so however greatly you can express, wherever your identity is and, and how you want people to see yourself, they would say that is going to be the happiest person. You know, we can think there's so many different answers that we can, um, that we can infer from just on a daily basis. What we hear and what we see on social media, on uh, television media, on the radios and podcasts, we're constantly being told, here's the way to a happy life. How happy is the one who blank? There's a lot of different things that I think are, we could imagine our culture saying, because so much exists in our modern world to make us happy. Think about all of the different things that we have available to us today, constantly pushed on us today, or things that we even carry around in our pockets all the time that exist to make us happy. They're not just tools of utility. You know, we don't just have them, but we have them because they are filled with promises of this and that will make you happy. Our entertainment industry is here, in, in, especially in America. We have this humongous entertainment uh, industry that's offering us endless amounts of content and opportunities to be entertained to make us happy. We have food, drinks, festivals, vacations, uh, drugs, etc., all that are promising to make us happy. Why? Why do we have so much today in media? and in experiences and in substances that are all there to say, here's how you can be happy. It's an obvious answer. We don't need to overthink it. It's because life is hard. It's because life is hard. Life is difficult. And if we're honest, usually the normal state of life is that it's difficult and we're not all that happy. And so we need these things to help us to make us happy because we're going about the, the, with the ongoing toil of work or struggling with uh, physical ailments or of the internal struggles that we face of, of anxieties or, uh, and, and so on. We struggle with conflict in relationships, conflict at work. We struggle with the anxieties of what's being told to us by the national media all the time and affairs in politics and global affairs and so on. We, we're, we're given, and we have things you know, available to us. Why? It's obvious. Because life is hard. And because without all these things, usually the normalcy of life would be misery. Now let's ask another follow-up question, which is why. 
So we have, why do we have all these things? It's because life is hard. But why is life so hard? This is a crucial question that needs to be answered. Because the way that you answer that question of why is life so hard, another way that we can phrase that question is what is wrong with the world? What is wrong with the world that causes it to be a state where human life is one that is uh, normally described as one of difficulty and misery rather than happiness and joy, right, or of pleasure? What is wrong with the world? What is wrong with our culture or society that causes it to be in this state? The way that you answer that question will determine so much in your life, in the way that you live out your life, in the, in the way that you make decisions about your relationships, in the way that you make decisions about what you will stay committed to and what you will not stay committed to, in the way that you will uh, pursue your career, the way that you will establish your home, the way that you will um, uh, set up for your future, and so on. What you decide to do with your time right now, what you decide to do with your money, and question, what is wrong with the world, will lead to forming your entire life. Because wrapped up in that question is one of the fundamental questions and answers that shapes a worldview. In other words, that shapes and determines what is the fundamental beliefs that I hold and live by. What are my fundamental, we might say, religious beliefs? And so, once again, consider, what does our culture tell us? Here's how you become happy. You get these things, or you get these kind of experiences, whether they're, they're trips or uh, sexual experiences or whatever else, or you express yourself in this way, or you, you use these substances, and then that will make you happy. What, is, what can we infer that the world is telling us about? What is the issue that, we, that is wrong with the world that we need to have solved? You know, whenever I think about it, you can usually uh, boil down what the, our, our culture's solution to everything in pills and politicians. If you're unhappy, it can usually be fixed, our culture will tell you, with either a pill or a politician. You know, in other words, the problem with, with the world around us and what makes life so difficult, what makes life hard, is not so much any moral responsibility that you and I hold, it's always something that is outside of our control. It's just a physiological issue that we can fix with a pill. I'm not, I'm not totally against, uh, you know, helpful drugs that can help real mental health issues. So I don't want you guys to think that. Okay, but there certainly can be an overuse of those things, right? Okay, so it, it's to address. Or, you know, it's something... Control. It's just the way that our culture is holding you back from really being your true self, and so you need to be liberated from that to express your true self. Or you know, there's always a politician who's willing to swoop, sweep in, uh, swoop in, and say, you know what, you're unhappy because of because of that party and because of those people, because of those policies, and I'm here to fix it. What is wrong with the world is something that is always outside of our control, and it's something that is uh, always can be fixed with something that is not a moral change within ourselves. How does the Bible answer the question? The Bible answers the question we can see in Psalm 32, whenever we ask, well, how does the Bible fill in the blank for how happy is the one who? 
David tells us. How, how joyful is the one whose transgression is forgiven. In that statement, we have our answer. It says, how happy, how joyful is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. You see, because the happiest man or woman is going to be that man or woman who has been freed from what makes them miserable, from what causes and what contributes to the misery and the difficulties of life. Once again, we have to ask, what, what is, the, what is the beneath? What makes life difficult and miserable and, and creates the conflicts and the issues that we face? Is it something that can be solved with a politician or a pill or just a little bit more entertainment? The Bible says no. What causes our misery is not something that is out there primarily, but it's something that is within our hearts, and that is sin. That is transgression. The primary problem to our misery and what holds us back from experiencing joy is sin in our hearts. In fact, to say that, you know, it's not just, sin is not just the reason for my own personal struggles, whatever kind of struggles they might be, but sin is also the reason for all of the problems that we see in our world today. Sin is the reason for the problems that we see of brokenness in communities, of, of, of neighborhoods and, and, and different demographics that are struggling and, uh, and broken, right? And there's, there's sickness within those so, uh, cultures and societies. We, we say fundamentally sin is what is causing that. And we are just seeing sin manifest in all these different ways. Even when we look at global or political affairs, as Christians we say the fundamental primor, uh, primary issue is sin in the world that must be dealt with and uh, covered by God before we can make any real change. Now that's not to say that there are other things in life as well that can be dealt with on more superficial levels, but as Christians, once again, we say that the fundamental issue beneath them all, if we want to seek any real change, we have to address what is the root of it all, and that is sin, which is why David says, how joyful is the one who, whose sins are forgiven, whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How joyful is a person, he says in verse 2, whom the Lord does not charge with iniquity. That is the secret. That is the key. You see, it's not, once again, what our culture typically identifies. The Bible says it is sin. The Bible recognizes, the Christian worldview affirms that it is unrighteousness, that it is sin that produces misery, difficulty, unhappiness, and even hopelessness or despair in our world. And so, our first point is this. What is the obstacle to joyfulness? It is sin. Sin is the obstacle to experiencing joy in prayer. Because like I said before, our, this series is about prayer, and I think when we look at the psalm, we can take what David says and then apply it to our focus in prayer. Why do we experience a lack of life why do we experience a lack of power and we, we, we have weakness in our prayers? There's no true encounter with God? Friends, we need to recognize that the issue might be indwelling sin in our heart that we have left covered, that we have left hidden, that we have remained silent about and have not brought before the Lord so that he can forgive those transgressions. 
any sin that is in our life that is not and remove it so that he can, as it says here in this verse, cover it between us and God. If you want to be someone who experiences God, if you want to be someone who knows God deeply, relationally, if we want to have a church that deeply, relationally, then we must be a people, and we must be a church that sin. Sin will keep an obstacle between you and God. Now, some of us in here might not know anything else than having that obstacle because you have not yet submitted to God as your Lord and as your Savior. If you are wrestling with despair, if you are wrestling with the dissatisfaction that comes in life, no matter how our culture tells you should satisfy you, let me suggest to you that perhaps the issue is that you do not truly know God because you have not had him cover your sin yet. Remove that sin so you can know him and then receive what is the true source of joy, which is relationship with God. And you, you don't know the delivered from sin because you have never experienced that yet. Maybe you need to do that for the first time today. Christians, you know often how miserable you are because you have been hiding your sin from God, because you have something to compare it to. You have, you have to the joy of where you've been before, where you didn't hide your sin, where you brought it before the Lord, and your heart thought that God receives me, accepts me, and he washes me clean. Oh, how much joy, how much happiness. And in that experience, you know, in that moment, whether you bring your sin before God and you have him remove it, all the other things in your life that go wrong and that add to misery and so on can remain unchanged, but you have a joy that feels as though it dropped straight out of heaven into your heart. You can still have physical ailments that need healing. You can still have a job you hate. You can still have conflicts with neighbors or family, right? You can still have all these other problems. But in prayer, whether you bring that sin before the Lord and he washes it clean and you experience the warmth of what uh, David describes here where he's, he talks about the faithful love of God surrounding you, there's nothing to compare that to. The joy of healing, the joy of a full bank account, the joy of a full pantry or of conflicts being resolved, even how good those things are, they don't compare to that heavenly joy you experience when you know God and your sins being forgiven. Guys, the obstacle to joy and the obstacle to joyfulness in prayer and power in prayer and, uh, and experiencing a prayer life that is life-giving and filling is our sin. And so what this means is that you must confess the sin that you find in your heart and life Confess the sin that you find in your heart and life. You, you, you need to remind yourself and look at Scripture and be reminded that we serve a God who is rich in mercy. We serve a God who is infinite in grace. We serve a God for whom, whenever we are in covenant with him, we have steadfast love. You know what that means? 
That covenantal love, it's love that cannot be taken away. And so why would I hide my sin? Even if I've been walking with the Lord for five years, 10 years, 50 years, and I recognize once again, oh no, I have sin in my heart. I have been uh, giving into temptation. I've been serving idols. I recognize that sin. Even after 50 years of walking with the Lord and having to repent over and over again, his love is not breakable for you. He is still rich in mercy, and he is still ready to receive your confession. So don't hide it from him. Confess the sin, all the sin that you find in your heart in your mind, in your life. Bring it before him. Don't delay. I love that it says in verse 6, let everyone who is faithful pray to you immediately. Bring it to him immediately. Anytime that you are tempted to hold it back and wait, anytime that you're cautious to bring that sin before him, that is the devil. That is the enemy trying to speak into your mind that, oh, he cannot hear this one. Oh, he cannot forgive this one. Oh, he cannot hear this confession again. Whenever you experience that holding you, that resistance holding you back, go to the word. Go to Psalm 32, 6. Therefore, let everyone who is faithful to you, uh, faithful, pray to you immediately. Don't hold back. Don't delay. Now, if we go to God in prayer, what will God do if we confess our sin? What will he do if we confess our sin? I know it might seem obvious, but I, I want us to really see this clearly and intentionally. What will he, he do if we confess our sin? We see it here in Psalm 32. In verses 1 and 2, it tells us what he will do. It says, how joyful is one whose transgression is forgiven. If you confess your sin, he will remove your transgression. That means breaking of his law. He will remove that from you. It says, whose sin is covered. That shamefulness that you don't want to be seen by God, that which you are ashamed of, that you feel guilty over, that you don't want to be seen by others, it says he will cover that shame. It's the idea of being, uh, of the shame of being naked and exposed. You know, have you ever had, I think almost everyone, you, you have one of those dreams, right, where uh, all of a sudden, like, you're just not wearing pants, and the entire dream, you're running around trying to find pants, and you, and like you're 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 at work, and you're like, oh God, I don't have pants on, and you're and then you're just running around, and you can't find pants, and it doesn't make any sense. Have any of you guys ever had that? Maybe it's just me. <laughs> like you ever had that dream before? What is that? It's the that that dream is our subconscious while we're at sleep. Uh, working out the experience of, of fear of being exposed. And it goes beyond just a fear of exposure of our physical bodies, but being exposed of what's in our hearts, being exposed in what we have done in private, being exposed to what we have thought. And we do so much to try to cover those things. But when we confess our sin, it says that God covers it. He covers that shame. He covers that nakedness. In verse 2, it says, How joyful is the person whom the Lord does not charge with iniquity. This is, this is language of accounting. You know, if you are owed a debt, that debt is charged to your account. 
No, David says that whenever we confess our sin and we bring it before God, though he should charge that debt to our account, it says that he does not charge that iniquity to us. We can read about this similarly in Colossians 2.14. In Colossians 2.14, Paul wrote, he erased the certificate of debt. Once again, this accounting term, this idea that we owe this unpayable debt before the Lord, but whenever we confess our sin before him, he erases this certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us, and it has been taken away by nailing it to the cross. That debt that was charged to our account, and as Paul says, and and all the obligations opposed to us with that debt, in the gospel, God takes that charge on our account, he removes it, and he places it on Jesus' account. He nails it to Jesus' cross, and Jesus pays that debt that was mine. Similarly, in... Romans chapter 4, in verses 8, uh, I'm sorry, Romans chapter 4, verses 6 through 8, Paul actually quotes Psalm 32. He says, likewise, David also speaks of the blessing of the person to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. He quotes these passages. uh, He says, blessed are those whose lawless acts are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the Lord, is the person uh, the Lord will never charge with sin. That's Paul's own, you know, Paul probably had the whole Old Testament memorized. And so if you ever read Paul quoting the Old Testament and the wording is slightly different than what you like, actually go back and read, like in this case here, it's because he had it memorized, right? And so he's, he's, he's speaking it from memory. And so sometimes you, you like slightly change a word here and there, but you're saying the same thing, right? Isn't that cool? So he changes it and says, lawless acts, are forgiven. Sins are covered. He says the Lord will never charge the person with sin who brings their sin before him. And he, he comments on this as David speaking of the person whom whenever uh, we bring our sin before God, it's not just that God removes the charge on our account, but listen to what Paul says. God credits righteousness apart from works. Whenever we bring our sin before God, he removes the debt that was charged to our account, but then we receive something. He removes that debt, and then we receive a deposit in our account. You know what that is? Paul says, righteousness. How do we get it? He says, it's apart from works. The righteousness that we receive uh, deposited into our account, that righteousness, that means favor with God. That means relationship with God. That means acceptability before God. We received that charge to our account because it was removed from Christ on the cross, and he received our debt. He received our debt and paid for it. And the the righteousness of Jesus Christ that he earned because of his obedience to the Father is then charged to our account. We receive his righteousness that we did not earn, that we did not work for, but is given to us as a gift based upon the accomplished work of Jesus Christ. What will happen when we confess our sin before God? He will lift our sin from us. He will cover our nakedness and shame, and he will apply the righteousness of Jesus Christ to our account, our life. Now, earlier I spent a little bit of time criticizing our culture's answers 
to what is the fundamental problem of life, criticizing what our society and culture might say. And they might respond to what I've just said, whenever they hear it, by saying, well, you're just offering another psychological trick. You know, we offer all kinds of therapeutic tricks as well. We offer all kinds of ways that you can maybe change your thinking that will lead to some improved happiness in your life. And that's all that you Christians are doing as well. You know, this idea of God and of Jesus, you know, really being out there, it's just something that helps you to think about, but it's not, a, it's not real, right? You know, you saw this, uh, there, there was a famous podcaster named Adam uh, Curry who recently became a Christian. He started out uh, by trying to uh, explore the conspiracy theory of God. That's the way he put it. And he said, I read everything I get my hands on, and you know what? It is real. It is real. He said, I'm as convinced about it as anything else I've ever researched. And he's talking about this with Joe Rogan. He's saying, it is real. I've read everything I can. He's talking about this with Joe Rogan. Joe says, yeah, you know, I guess I can see how it's helpful to, like, think about God. He doesn't get it, right? It's just, it's a helpful thought. It's a therapeutic trick. It's It's a psychological mechanism that you can use. But it's not something real. So our culture might say, how do you know that it's real? How do you know that, that you truly do have these sins, this debt, that a God who is actually there truly removes? Is there proof of forgiveness, in other words? We can say yes. No, trust me, there's a lot of proofs that we could go to. But let me just point out one in Psalm 32. In Psalm 32, David says how joyful is a person whom the Lord does not charge with iniquity, and, he says, and in whose spirit is no deceit. David is describing how this encounter with God that leads to a removal of sin, a covering of our transgressions, and so on, leads to a person who is fundamentally changed down into their soul. Because before we're filled with deceit. Before we hide our sin, before we hide ourselves from one another. But he says, but the person who knows God and who has experienced this true event of sins being removed and righteousness credited to that person, he says, that person is then fundamentally changed. Is there proof for forgiveness? We can say yes. How do we know it's real? Because it changes men and women's hearts. Moreover, you know, so... In other words, your own life, your own testimony to, look, it's not just that my behavior's changed, but I have been changed down into the core of my being. That is a proof and a testimony of God's work and the reality of the God who is there. But moreover, we can also point out to other ways that this forgiveness brings about real results that go beyond just inner transformation to outward proofs. Because we see in Psalm 32 that the blessing of forgiveness is not just spiritual. Look, notice in, um, Psalm, in verses 3 and 4. David says, when I kept silent, my bones became brittle from my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was drained as in the summer's heat. Now, yes, it's poetry, but... We can also, we can read beyond just the poetic language here that David is describing physical ailments. David is describing physical, tangible experiences that he had in his body because of his sin. But then whenever he brought his sin before God, those issues were healed. 
The bones became brittle, no more. The strength that was not there, no more. He's filled with life. And Christians, this is something that you can attest to as well. Have you ever gone through a period where you were hiding your sin from God, where you were not bringing it before him and you were indulging in idolatry? You were indulging in your temptation. Maybe you let it go by for a day or two, a couple days, and you, you don't just start to feel miserable in your mind, but it manifests in your body. You, you can feel the effects of sin in your body. You feel that weakness, as David talks about here. You feel a darkness and dullness in your mind. But then you bring that sin before the Father, and it can literally be experienced in a physical change. Right? We can say, look, I have been healed, not just my soul, but, I, but it's in my body. I know that it is true. These are proofs of forgiveness. Sin can attack our bodies, nerves, and mind. Of course, not all physical problems that we have are the result of sin, but that's not to say that some are not. Confession is the way to experience joy in prayer. Sin is the obstacle, so what is the way to experiencing joy in prayer? Confession. Confession is the way. Guys, real sinners, uh, I'm sorry, real Christians are not afraid of being known as sinners. We who have been freed from our sin because of God's work, who have had our transgressions, our, our lawless acts removes, removed, and our nakedness covered by him, we are now not ashamed of hiding that fact. We are not ashamed of being known as sinners. In other words, we are not afraid of confession because we recognize that confession is the way to joy. Confession is the way to our sin being removed because as we just looked at explicitly for several minutes, right, confession before God is responded to with lifting sin off, crediting righteousness, covering shame, and so on. But as long as you keep your sins covered, you will not experience that joy. And in fact, the longer that you keep your sins covered, one day God will uncover them. If you decide to keep your sins covered and to not bring them before God and to not repent and submit to him and obey him and experience the gift that he gives, then one day God will uncover those sins in his eternal punishment. But we have the hope of life and of forgiveness and of grace offered to us in Jesus Christ. Those who keep their sin covered, God will uncover it. But those who uncover their sin before God, so that he might forgive it in his grace, wash it away in the blood of Christ, he will then cover our transgressions and our guilt. Do not remain with your sins covered. Bring them before the Father. Bring them before God. Bring them before the foot of the cross so that your debt might be nailed to Jesus' cross, and then he will wash away your guilt and he will cover your shame. Uncover your sin so that God can cover it. You know, there, there's this wonderful realism in this passage that we read about here, which is that it's David who wrote this. Isn't that great? Because David is the only guy in Scripture who is described as having a heart after God's. The greatest king, you know, as we spent a long time in our previous series on the life of David, you know, he was the archetypal king of Israel, pointing forward to Jesus. 
one of the greatest saints and heroes in, 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 among all the saints. This guy experienced this, wrestling with sin and having to bring it before the Father in confession and then receiving the joy that comes with that. Isn't that great hope for us? If that even David, one of the greatest, one of the heroes, right, and all that he did for the Lord and, and, and what a man he was, if even he experienced wrestling with sin and bringing before the Father, then, hey, it's okay if any of us have to do so as well. We don't need to feel guilty about it anymore because all of our guilt has been removed. We don't need to be ashamed of it because God has covered our shame. We now live not, not outside of his love, but as it says in this psalm, surrounded by his faithful love. So bring everything to God. Like I said before, do not leave anything covered. Bring everything to God. Even if you aren't sure if something was sinful, bring it before God and ask him, was that sinful? You know, maybe you've had something like that before. I know I've experienced times like that before where I reflect on a situation, I'll reflect on, on, on something, and I think, you know, I don't know if I sinned there. And that, and maybe in my response to that person or, or so on, yeah, I don't know if that was sinful or not. So what do I do? Just say, nah, don't worry about it. Or do I bring it before God? Because I trust in his grace. I know that th- this isn't going to uh, put me under his wrath. He's not going to turn me away. So I bring it before God. And I say, Lord, was this sin? Help me to understand what was going on in my heart. Help me to understand th- what happened in the situation and the way that I responded to it. Was there sin operating that I didn't even see? You know, help me to discern it. And he helps us to discern. And sometimes we see it wasn't sin. But maybe we grew in wisdom through the situation. Other times we saw ah, there was some sin operating there. Or maybe it's not even a situation. It's the way that we kind of respond to a situation later. You know, we see sin creeps up. And if we bring that before the Lord, he can help us to discern it. And then where we, he helps us to discern it, he helps us to see, look, there was hidden pride in your heart that was operating. You didn't even realize it. He, he shows us, and we bring it before him, and he forgives it. And we grow closer to him throughout the whole process. And that's experiencing power in prayer. That's experiencing life in prayer. That's experiencing happiness in prayer. When we get to bring our sin before the Father and know that it's removed and grow closer to him in the process. There's no, like I said before, there's no such great joy in this world as the Christian who knows that their sins have been forgiven. Conversely, there's no greater misery than the Christian who is backslidden. We all know this from experience, from times that we have backslidden, whether it be a short period, a couple days, maybe a week, whether it be a longer period that we have backslidden and avoided the Father, We've avoided the conviction of the Holy Spirit. We have avoided confession. And there is no such misery as the Christian who is backslidden. Let me encourage you today. If that is you, and you have been holding your sin back, and you have been avoiding God, you have been avoiding the sting of the Holy Spirit, do not hold it back today. Do not keep yourself covered. Don't hide behind that obstacle, but let him remove it so you can walk down the path to joy so your misery can be dealt with and you might know the wonderful happiness that comes in God and experiencing him in prayer. Don't hold back. Lastly, we see that this joyfulness is something that grows. 
Because, our last point, our joy leads to other people, to others experiencing the joy of confession and forgiveness. Real quickly, we can see three testimonies that David has in this psalm because of his experience of not hiding his transgression but bringing it before God. He has three testimonies. And for anyone who follows after David in confessing sin and receiving forgiveness, receiving righteousness, growing closer to God, you will have three testimonies as well that leads to the growth of joyfulness. Let me give you the first one. The first is that you will have a testimony to God. In verse 6, it says, Therefore, let everyone who is faithful pray to you immediately. David is calling for us now. You know, he's moving beyond his, own, his reflection on his own experience, now calling on all the faithful to bring our sins before God as well right now because of what God has done in his own life. So the person who has experienced this joy and forgiveness of sin, they will have a testimony to God. What does it mean to have a testimony to God? It means to speak good of his name. It means that you have a good word to speak of his name and of what he has done in your life. And this is such a natural thing to do. We go to a new restaurant and try it out, and we have a great experience with a waiter or waitress, and the food is good. We enjoy the atmosphere, and we go and we tell somebody about it. We speak good of the name of that place. Or we have our favorite sports teams, and uh, they win games, or they get new players, or so on, and we share about it and talk about it. We speak good of their name so that others might enjoy what we have enjoyed. It's such a natural thing for us to do. And for those who are filled with the joyfulness of the Lord, it'll lead to the same thing. You won't be able to hold it in. You'll speak of the goodness of God. Maybe the reason that so many of us have struggled in evangelism or we have struggled in telling others about the goodness of God is because we haven't been experiencing it. Bring your sin before him so that you might have joyfulness. So you have a testimony to God, but then you also have a testimony to deliverance. But I realized right before I came up here, if you download my notes, there's a typo here. So it's not verse 11, but verse 7. In verse 7 it says, you are my hiding place. You protect me from trouble. You surround me with joyful shouts of deliverance. The person who experiences this have, has a testimony of deliverance. What does that mean to have a testimony of deliverance? It means deliverance from the control and sovereignty of sin over your life. Paul in Colossians chapter 1, 13 and 14 says, He has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. In him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Deliverance means deliverance out of that domain of darkness, out of the sovereignty of darkness, out of the, the kingdom of sin, and now living in the kingdom of the son that he loves, as it says. And in that kingdom, there is freedom. So we have a deliverance from our sin. It no longer has power over us. Isn't that good news? Sin has no power over you. Yes, we still wrestle with temptation. Yes, we still wrestle with our fallen flesh. But in the Holy Spirit and in the gospel, we have power to overcome every temptation and every sin. You'll fall. You'll fail. That's okay. You have the steadfast love of God surrounding you. There is no excuse still to not repent and to not fight sin again the next day. Because we have deliverance from its power. Lastly, if you experience this, you have a testimony to God's guidance in your life. In verses 8 and 9, so this psalm moves from David speaking, and then in 8 and 9, 
it moves from David being the, the speaker to God being the speaker. So it's important to understand that. It moves from eight, in 8 and 9 to God being the speaker. The Lord says, I will instruct you and show you the way to go with my eye on you. I will give counsel. Do not be like a mule or a horse or a mule without understanding. The Lord guides us in our life now. And this is something that is incredibly practical. Whenever we know God, whenever we bring uh, our sin before him in prayer and we, and we bathe all of our activities of life in prayer, well, then he now guides us. As I said before, even whenever you, if you don't know if something is sinful or not, you can bring that before him. If you are wrestling with a decision, especially if you are wrestling with an ethical decision, you can bring that before the Lord, and he guides us, he says. He instructs us, and he shows us the way to go. This is incredibly practical. We face ethical problems all the time, in our marriages or in our workplaces, at, in our schools. We face all kinds of decisions that we have to make that are ethical. Maybe sometimes they're not ethical, but they're just practical decisions. And for the one who knows God, because there is no obstacle of sin, he instructs you and he shows you the way to go. He guides you. There's guidance for us. It's incredible. It's practical. But it tells us, he says, do not be like a horse or a mule that needs to have a bridle in its mouth. This guidance that comes from God here, it's something that has to be participated in. So don't resist him. Don't fight against him. Don't ignore him. But go to him seeking guidance, being obedient and ready to follow him. Let's pray. <coughs> Lord, I come for you now and ask that you would give us the faith and trust that you have surrounded us in your steadfast love so that we would not fear bringing our sin before you. Father, with the help of your Holy Spirit this morning, help us to uncover our sin so that you might cover it and that we would then experience the joy of forgiveness. We pray this in your name. Amen.